Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Kortz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Dr. Johnson, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. I feel well rested. I just got back from vacation, so I'm doing particularly uh, well today, I'd say. Oh, very nice. All right, we're going to get high under Dr. Johnson, and we're going to record for like three or four hours then. You shouldn't decide anything. <laughs> my, my, my sentences may be more complete than usual today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sure they won't hear. I'm sure they won't hear a difference, but uh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, so today we're discussing uh, how to engage with neurotrauma uh, as a subspecialty in neurosurgery for medical students and residents um, and beyond. We'll also touch on how neurosurgeons can interact with health policy um, and, and the best way to do that. And to help us do that, our guest is Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco and specializes in the treatment of traumatic brain and spinal cord injury with additional research interests in health economics and policy. He attended Toro University College of Osteopathic Medicine before completing his residency training and a Master of Health Administration at LSU in New Orleans. Uh, he then completed a fellowship in neurotrauma, neurocritical care, and minimally invasive and complex spine research at UCSF. Dr. DiGiorgio, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and kudos to you guys for a great podcast you're putting on. I think this is a, a real service to the community. So thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you for the kind words. Uh, we're, we're so happy for you to be a part of it. Um, I agree. Yeah. So Dr. Johnson, to set the scene, uh, do you want to give a brief overview of uh, neurosurgery training, when people, uh, residents and, and med students should be thinking about fellowships in, in general, and maybe the different pathways that they can take. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a broad overview. If you've listened to all of these podcasts in succession, you probably heard this um, a few times, but in summary, skip, 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 skip. Yeah, exactly. You can skip <laughs> forward 15 seconds, five yeah. times and you will make no. um, So in general, people that go into neurosurgery in the United States have, have four years of undergraduate training, followed by four years of medical school, followed by uh, matriculating into residency, which is typically seven years. People typically begin to think about what they're going to subspecialize in in some time in their first three years if they are, don't already have a strong interest going into, into residency training. Um, and I think most people sort out what their subspecialty path may be somewhere in the third year through fifth year range would be probably typical, but sometimes a little bit later, sometimes a little bit earlier. And in that range, you have to kind of do make a few important decisions. One is what are you going to do with your middle years, which often there's some flexibility if you want to do infolded clinical experiences, research, do things like MBAs in the middle of your residency. That kind of has to be planned out, but is possible in many programs. And then you have to decide if you're going to do a postgraduate fellowship. Um, which typically occurs just after you graduate from residency, but also some programs allow you to um, do your chief year and your sixth year and do a quote-unquote postgraduate training experience in your seventh year, typically at the home program. A lot of ins and outs of how this should work, but the earlier you plan for this, the better off you are, which is why I think people 
tend to think about this in their early years as best as they can. So uh, that said, we'll, we'll let uh, Dr. Giorgio talk more about the pathways to become a trauma specialist and what that may mean, as well as neurocritical care. Uh, but that's generally the overview of, of, of it, of the training pathway. And now people that want to be even more specialized in trauma often will do some sort of additional training, although you don't have to. People that just graduate from general nursery training certainly take care of trauma patients. But if you want to kind of specialize in an academic way with a component of research and mentorship, I think many people do these fellowships. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear Dr. DiGiorgio's take on all this. Reading the fellowship training that you completed, it was a lot there. Um, so I'm excited to unpack that. And, and thanks for the context, Dr. Johnson. So to take a step back, Dr. DiGiorgio, I'd love to hear just your path and the story of you getting into neurosurgery and maybe this is an inspiration time. This is, this is half, half time. You're, you're giving a pep talk to all the med students out there um, who, who are looking to do neurosurgery as a career. Yeah. So my path into neurosurgery really goes back to way back when I was in high school, I really found the brain, spinal cord, nervous system interesting and kind of got hooked on it. Then um, uh, I was lucky enough to have a neurosurgery mentor through undergraduate and got exposure to neurosurgery clinic and surgery. And he was lucky enough to, or fortunate enough to let me shadow uh, for weeks at a time. And the more exposed I was, the more I just enjoyed neurosurgery. It took me four years after undergraduate to get into medical school. And that's something I think, you know, we can all talk about our failures openly. So uh, I'm happy to talk about that and admit to that. But after getting into medical school, I went to Toro. Uh, it's a DO school up here in Northern California. I was lucky enough to match into neurosurgery at LSU. Uh, my path to neurotrauma and spine uh, went a lot, as Dr. Johnson mentioned, my program had some flexibility and I actually did the uh, minimally invasive and complex spine research fellowship during my research year, my fifth year at LSU. I was able to work with Dr. Muminetti at UCSF um, and go over there for six months and still have LSU uh, pay my salary for those six months. Uh, which was very fortunate. I didn't require any sort of extra grant funding or anything to complete that research fellowship. And then through that, Dr. Muminetti connected me with Dr. Manley, who is the head of the neurotrauma program here at UCSF. And Dr. Johnson's right. Most all programs will probably give you a very good foundation in neurotrauma through your seven years of training. It's required that you cover a trauma hospital in your training. Um, and I went to work with Dr. Manley because I wanted to work with the best. Uh, he has developed a lot of the techniques that you see, such as the Lycox monitor, a lot of the different intracranial monitors. Uh, the basic science research came out of his lab and out of UCSF. And so I wanted to learn from him. I thought um, as good as we are at neurotrauma, I think we can do a lot better. And so I wanted to learn from the research, at, research aspect what we can be doing better. Uh, so that led me to Dr. Manley uh, and the fellowship there. And the, the UCSF fellowship was unique in that it was combined neurotrauma and neurocritical care. So I got training in both. Um, so I am able to do neurocritical care and neurotrauma. And that's something that is sort of in flux these days. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for elucidating all that. So I guess what does your practice look like now, it seems like there's multiple components there that you, you touched on. Um, so what does your clinical and research practice look like now? Is it, uh, are you focused more on, on one aspect of that than the other, or does it all kind of fit in together like it did within your fellowship training? 
I'm very fortunate to have the practice that I do uh, right now. Uh, Dr. Manley at the end of my fellowship convinced me to stay on as faculty. And uh, he basically offered me all the things I wanted in a practice, which was some flexibility, um, a salary that had no RVU stipulations and allowed me to ample time with the flexibility to work on research, to work on building an elective practice at San Francisco General Hospital. So my practice is one out of every four weeks, I take a week of call at the general hospital. And in that week, I cover anything that comes to the ER, uh, be it trauma, be it um, non-traumatic acute neurosurgical uh, pathologies. Uh, We also cover some elective cases occasionally. And I cover the neurosurgical ICU and the floor. So um, a lot of the the billing is not just for surgery, but for E&M ICU billing, um, as well as consults. And then on the other uh, weeks when I'm not on call, uh, I do some research. I have uh, two half-day elective clinics, and I will occasionally get some elective cases, uh, mostly minimally invasive spine cases, out of those two half days a week. So I'll do maybe two or three cases a week uh, on the elective side when I'm not on call. That's great. Dr. Johnson, does that – so we talked about how you get great neurotrauma and neurocritical training – through residency. Um, and I'm sure you got that great training when you were completing your, your training. Um, and I'm curious, how does that, do you feel like residency training prepares you for, for your practice in some of those things? I know you're cerebrovascular and endovascular, but how does that, how does that all fit for you? Right. So I did uh, training at a level one trauma center, um, in, in Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Rider Trauma Center. So we had a pretty trauma-intensive program. So I felt very comfortable taking care of trauma patients. So my first job out of training, despite being in the endovascular, supervascular, dual fellowship um, pathway, involved general call at a level one trauma center. And so I took care of those patients, brain and spine, and felt very comfortable doing so. Now, I think it's a different level when you're talking about doing research and trials and um, and really being embedded in the in the culture of neurotrauma, trying to advance the field. I think it's a little bit different than just handling neurotrauma um, as you know appropriate neurosurgical management, which I think you can you know very well do in most most programs. Maybe not all programs are very strong, but in many programs they are in trauma training. But I think the next step when you really need to consider these fellowships is when you really want to be like be an intensive focus of your practice, being in trauma and trying to advance the field. I think that's when the fellowships Dr. Dr. Giorgio alluded to are very important. That's, that's great. That's actually a great segue into what my next question would be is that um, it sounds like it's the goal. I mean, the goal is really what drives you. Um, yeah. I mean, you always, prepared, you know, in many different realms of life, I think people always say design your path with the end in mind, right. you know? So if you are you know, beginning your training and you kind of know what you want your practice to look like at the end, then, um, I think you can very much have a much better chance to kind of design each step in a logical manner to get what you want at the end. And that may change and and you can of course pivot. Um, but I do think that's helpful. So Dr. Giorgio, who should complete a neurotrauma and neurocritical care fellowship? Is it just, what are the, some of the litmus tests for maybe a, a second, third or fourth year resident who's thinking about it, but doesn't really know, you know, maybe they're interested in a couple other things, uh, maybe counsel uh, someone through that thought process. I think as Dr. Johnson put it, someone who wants to help advance the field is really paramount because you will get your neurotrauma training 
in residency, you should probably be pretty comfortable handling most things that come through the ER once you're finished with your residency training. And a lot of junior faculty or, or young neurosurgeons out of training will be asked to cover a lot of trauma shifts. Uh, so if you really want to advance the field, and then you have to think about the changing field of acute care neurosurgery. And that's something we can talk about further, but um, whether or not you want to have critical care privileges, uh, that that scene is changing. And uh, there's a lot more that's going to be asked of neurosurgeons who want to have admitting privileges to the ICU. So if you want to have ICU admitting privileges and be able to run a critical care unit from a neurosurgery perspective, uh, you may want to look into what fellowships offer that sort of training as well. I think it'd be great to sit on that if you want to just elaborate on on some of those things you were touching on, whether it's in the near future or how things are changing right now. Right. Well, back in the day, it used to be that it was implied after seven years of neurosurgery training, you were critical care uh, trained as well, because we do spend all seven years basically in the ICU. Our patients are often there. We're managing aneurysms. We're managing post-op brain tumors. We're managing TBI. Uh, that's changing, and it no longer is implied with neurosurgical training that you get ICU certification as well. And the ACGME and CAST certification uh, criteria are in shift, and it is likely going to be that in order to get critical care certified, you'll need to uh, finish the ACGME criteria, which is a one-year, 12 months of non-operative critical care training. And so if you want to be a neurosurgery, neurocritical care physician, you'll probably have to look into doing that pathway. Um, and that goes into the, the broader uh, subspecialization that I like to call acute care neurosurgery, which incorporates neurotrauma, neurocritical care, sort of in one specialty, similar to the way the general surgeons have moved into having an acute care, neuro, acute care surgery subspecialty that incorporates trauma and uh, critical care. Wow. Okay. So it does sound like there's definitely some things in, in flux right now. Um, maybe not in flux, but things are changing. Um, so maybe getting a little more pragmatic for someone who, let's say they are interested in doing this um, and they, uh, they, they see uh, acute care, neurocritical care as something that they want to, to be a big part of their practice. And that's a research focus of theirs. Um, when should they be thinking about these things? I know we've, we've said kind of early in residency, but that's kind of vague. Earlier is always better, but are there certain milestones to hit? Uh, is it an application process like it is for pediatrics or is it more, uh, like a job interview where you just kind of call around. Um, do you want to describe a little bit about how the actual process works for someone who's interested? Very informal. So it, it's not like the PEDS match uh, where it's an actual match. It's, it's informal. It's with, uh, you know, just cold calling, cold emailing, program directors, sending your CV around, working any connections you may have um, and getting in that way. Uh, I would probably start fourth and fifth year to establish those connections. I think I had my fellowship uh, all locked up uh, right at the beginning of my sixth year. And I interviewed it towards the end of my fifth year. Um, so that would be the timeline you'd probably want to stick to. And what are some things that set you apart? I mean, I know that you spent some time at UCSF during your fifth year doing research, kind of set you up for when you wanted to do your fellowship. But does uh, are there certain things I know, you know, as like a med student, you got to have your research, you got to, you know, do well on your boards. I mean, there are certain numbers that people look at, or is it more just cold calling, like you said, and having some letters of reference that are just um, phenomenal? Neurosurgery is a very small field. So right. it's mostly working connections and your letters of reference. 
um, almost everyone is knows somebody who knows somebody who will know you by right. the time you're halfway through your residency training. So that's the big thing. And then, of course, having a CD with some research experience on it will, will obviously help. Does the basic versus clinical thing matter or is it, I mean, I know you are working clinically, so I was curious if there's any delineation there. No, I think just have showing a strong uh, yeah. research interest and being able to show some productivity. So Dr. Johnson, I, I, to set the scene for, because there is a, a significant health economics component to treating patients in the neurosurgical ICU. Um, they can be in the hospital for a long time. I know departments and individual physicians get graded on these things for how long patients are in the, the hospital and that sort of thing. And um, how do you see in your practice um, thinking about quality of care and the, the economics, even on a, on a day-to-day scale? Um, how does that impact your practice, Dr. Johnson? That's a good question. I, I must say I've been fortunate that I've never really been questioned on those kind of metrics in my practice. Hmm. Uh, I know they exist and I know administrators talk about them. But when you're taking care of trauma patients and some of the patients I'm taking care of, acute care, neurosurgery with, you know, stroke, intracranial hemorrhages, surrounding hemorrhages, you know, the metrics are just different than, you know, your elective, um, like <laughs> Dr. George's elective minimally invasive spine patients, right? So, um, you know, I think everybody makes accommodations for very sick patients and, and their long trajectory in the hospital. And it's not necessarily under my control if they have the world's best insurance and a couple of days after their stroke, they go to the top rehab in town, um, or if they don't have insurance and it takes quite a while to get them into one of those spaces, I, I just don't think that's in your control as a surgeon for acute care. Um, so I think, I think that's something that, at least in my experience, most hospitals and practices have been understanding about. And, um, and, uh, and, and it does impact the, the finances of the hospital, all these factors you cite, but it's, it's part of their mission, I think, as a trauma center, as a comprehensive stroke center to take care of those patients. Dr. DiGiorgio, do you want to compare, contrast, react to all that? I know that you got the MA, you got the master degree um, to be more involved in that space uh, more directly, and uh, I think people are increasingly. Um, I know my colleagues are increasingly looking for ways just to set themselves apart, and so just graduate degrees for that reason are part of their um, pathway now. But I think people are also with that genuinely interested in this part of healthcare, they see, you know, GDP, the share of GDP with healthcare just going up. They see these things in the news and they want to be a part of the solution. Um, and so I'm really interested in both your individual practice and more uh, broad, broadly, um, how you see health economics and neurosurgery coming together. Yeah, I think Dr. Johnson, you're fortunate if your hospital doesn't bother you too much about the uh, economic side of things. Um, you know, I think the, the coding queries and the prior authorizations, you know, you don't get those for trauma, but uh, you certainly get the coding queries or the, uh, the questions from the, the social workers, when can this patient be transferred um, or the, the lack of options for rehab for a lot of these Medicaid patients. Um, and my journey into healthcare administration and economics started uh, when I was at LSU. Uh, we did our trauma training at Charity Hospital uh, which is a, a huge level one trauma center that covers about half of the state. And it's also one of the few uh, neurosurgery services that would uh, accept Medicaid patients for the state of Louisiana. So I saw how much simple policy changes could affect the lives of our patients. 
Uh, for example, uh, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act was enacted in Louisiana while I was a resident and I saw our patient population uh, grow because all of a sudden people had more access to Medicaid. But then I saw how the policy decisions made at the administrative level of our hospital, um, at the state level and even the federal level affected how we were able to care for those patients, uh, be it elective or trauma. Um, and so that's what really got me interested in this policy pathway. And I started at Ground Zero and I had no economic training, um, no training in finances or business. I went the typical medical school route. So uh, that's why I got the master's degree in health administration because I wanted to learn those things just so I could speak the language of the administrators who were telling me, no, I couldn't do this or no, I couldn't do that. And it was really, it came down to a, patient advocacy issue is that I felt I knew what was best for my patients, but I just didn't know how to speak those, that administrator language. And I know as neurosurgeons, uh, when we say we want to do something, they ask why, and the answer is usually because I said so. Um, but that doesn't really work when talking to a lot of these administrators. So I had to relearn how to speak their language. And that was really the benefit of getting that, um, that master's degree in administration. I mean, I, I definitely want to... Uh throw my hat in the ring. I, I am completing an MBA and it's been just so far, it's been a great experience for myself. Similar to what you're saying, um, not being an expert by any means, but being able to be at the table um, is something that I feel more comfortable with and hopefully will be a part of my practice down the road. But so where do you see um, you identified a couple of the real world examples of how that has been, uh, has affected your practice as well as things you see uh, as challenges that need to be overcome, you know, neurosurgery practice uh, is typically done, at least at the academic level, um, on a lot of patients who don't have maybe other access to other places to do to get their care. And so, where are some, what are some things that you think, um, on a national scale and even locally, that you think uh, we can do, we could do better, or you're excited about researching more about, looking forward over the next five, ten years or so. My main research interest has been to show how different policy changes have changed the way we treat patients. Um, I'm not going to go down the whole path of prescribing the, um, the answer to all of the United States healthcare ills. Uh, that's, that's a bigger bite. Than you have 20 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I try to take smaller bites and really see just how specific things can affect uh, healthcare and how we deliver healthcare to our patients. So, um, just simple things like changes, changes in payment schedules, um, changes in how we do our E&M coding, which just came down the line in, in uh, January of 2021. I think that will have a huge change on how we're able to deliver care, uh, things like telehealth. Um, so those specific policy things that we can, uh, we can really maybe drill down and see a before and after effect uh, to see how those have affected our patients. That's great. I, I did have a question for you. What do you think is the, the next big exciting thing in neurotrauma care, either spine or, or cranial? Do you think you're really excited about something that your field is working on uh, that everybody can kind of clue into if they're interested in research, maybe it's something that people can start looking into? Uh, I think there's a few things coming down the pike in both neurotrauma and spine trauma. Uh, for neurotrauma, I really think uh, the EEG recording, uh, being able to catch and treat things like cortical spreading depression in trauma patients, I think is going to end up being huge. Um, so that's something I'm very excited about. And then I think we are a lot more advanced at 
post-injury monitoring in the cranial side uh, and not so much in the spine side. So I would like to see if we can move a lot of the monitoring techniques we've developed for cranial trauma to spinal cord trauma. Um, so things like uh, spinal cord perfusion pressure, uh, et cetera. I think that that's going to be the next big thing in spinal cord trauma. That's great. And for those who may not have experience in neurosurgery yet, what, what does your typical week on call look like? I mean, how many spinal cord injuries, how many cranial traumas, what types of surgeries you might you do in, in a week uh, on call at your hospital? It's pretty variable, as, as I'm sure anyone that's practiced knows that uh, it just depends on the weather and how, how much people are getting out. We saw a little bit of a dip with COVID, uh, but it, it's picking back up. So, you know, maybe two or three uh, operative cranial cases come through the ER in a week, maybe one or two operative spine cases. Um, our hospital, San Francisco General, just our, our catchment area is the city and county of San Francisco, and that's it. Um, there are multiple other trauma centers around. When I was at Charity Hospital, the catchment area was the southern half of Louisiana and part of Mississippi. So it was a much bigger catchment area uh, with a much higher trauma volume. Uh, and that's something that can really vary from place to place. Awesome. Do you think you need to have like a spine fellowship to do spine trauma? Or do you think it's something that everybody can do uh, who's interested in cranial trauma without doing extra training like you did in spine? I think that depends on what you were exposed to in your residency. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a great spine trauma mentor in residency, uh, Dr. Gabe Tender, who taught me a lot of minerally invasive techniques for dealing with spine trauma. So we did a lot of lateral corpectomies. Uh, we had a, a paper we wrote up on uh, using MIS techniques for uh, spinal gunshot injuries to the spine. Uh, so MIS bullettectomies. Um, so it really depends on your training during residency. Uh, if you feel like you've had a good exposure during residency and can handle anything that comes through the door, then you probably don't need a spine fellowship. But if you haven't gotten that, um, if your spine exposure has only been elective DGEN cases, you may want to consider doing a, a fellowship that's specific for spine trauma. That's interesting. I'm not sure I've ever heard a, uh, a specific spine trauma fellowship. Uh, who, where, where would you go for that kind of training? Come to us. We do. We do plenty. <laughs> Yeah, I must say we had a lot of spine trauma in our training as well. Our spine fellows see a fair amount of it. Uh, I say we when I was in residency at Miami. Um, so I think a lot of the high-level high trauma center programs probably have a fair amount of that in their fellowships. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. DiGiorgio, maybe uh, to push the, the can down the road a little bit um, or up the road up the hill. For med students who are uh, looking to get into, like, let's say, getting into their third and fourth years, transition into residency here soon. How can they set themselves apart uh, and prepare for being a part of a, a trauma team, being part of, you know, taking care of neurosurgical patients on the unit and, and that sort of thing? Because I know that's a big part of setting yourself apart as, as a sub-I and even as an intern. I still use my Greenbergs. I think that's a great resource. Yeah. Uh, the, the trauma section in Greenbergs is, is pretty good. It's pretty straightforward. Um, I would know the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines and the American College of Surgeons uh, Trauma Quality Improvement Project guidelines for brain trauma. Uh, they're both pretty thorough and pretty comprehensive. Um, if you can know those and know how to do an accurate GCS, I think you'll be well on your way. All right, so that's where you reverse 15 seconds and then you write all that down and <laughs> right. we'll put links of that sort of thing up to the, on the website. Cause that's, 
I think people are yearning for, you know, what are the great place, places to find those and that kind of information? Cause just reading Greenberg's I know is, is tough sometimes um, without having the direction. And so having that is, is great. Um, so thank you. But yeah, I, I think this has been a great conversation. I didn't know Dr. DiGiorgio or Dr. Johnson, if you had anything that you wanted to uh, close on anything else that you thought is important for um, anyone in the pathway, whether it's neurosurgery, more general health policy, anything. Um, I think this has been a great conversation, but um, if you have anything else you'd want to add, that'd be great. Dr. Johnson, I'll defer to you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I actually have one last question. I'm sorry if I'm ruining uh, Michael's closure is what do you think in the future, someone who wants to specialize in neurotrauma, are they going to have to do uh, a fellowship that has a pretty intensive operative trauma volume and a neurocritical care? And how do you see those fitting together? It's hard to ask someone who's done seven years of training to do two fellowships. Yeah. So I understand. Um, but it's similar as the, the vascular world, as you know, um, mm-hmm. that often people will do the endovascular and the open vascular. And there are ample opportunities to enfold one of those. Right. Um, so I really do think the critical care training is crucial if you're going to specialize in neurotrauma. Uh, I think we have sort of abdicated that role. Uh, as a specialty, and if um, if we are going to uh, maintain our ICU privileges, which I think is crucial for treating these patients, uh, we really do need that specialized training. As much as that is sort of redundant with a lot of the neurosurgical training, it really does help to be able to manage a ventilator, manage sedation, put an A-line, put a central line. Those are things that are important that, that we should be able to continue to do as neurosurgeons if we are focusing on something as acute as neurotrauma and critical care. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out uh, going forward and how people mix those together. So it's not nine years of training to do to do uh, this field. Uh, exactly. You know. No, I think neurotrauma is incredibly important. You know, the patients are sick, but the saves can be amazing. It's very, very important that neurosurgery maintain a extremely prominent role in managing these patients and treating them. Um, and uh, and people at Dr. DiGiorgio are, are crucial to that. So appreciate you coming to share, share your experience. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been awesome. Thank you, Dr. DiGiorgio. You have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day and we look forward to next time.